Good morning. What a wonderful hymn of praise. And we're going to continue our worship this morning by taking our Bibles and turning to Romans chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Romans chapter 8. In the Pew Bible, it's page 945. The purpose of this mini-series has been to look at some of the statements of Paul in the book of Romans, chapter 5 and chapter 8, to help us understand God's eternal plans for us and our security in Him, even though there are many sources, not least of all, even ourselves, that can cause us to doubt it. So with that in mind, let's read from verse 31. We're obviously jumping in in the midst of his chapter. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. This is what the Word of God says. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm sure for all of us, doubts come in a form of many different questions. Is the whole Christianity thing true? Can God be trusted? When he says that he will save us, can we be sure that he's going to be able to pull it off? Shouldn't I feel differently? I, I just feel like it's not working in my life, or maybe it's worn off. I became a Christian so long ago, I can barely even remember. For some of us, our, our sense of security can, in Christ can kind of go up and down like a yo-yo. And then for, for some of us, maybe it's more like the relentless erosion of a cliff against the waves day in, day out. And in this passage we've read, Paul wants us to grasp and grasp confidently that we are secure in God through Christ Jesus. We are secure in God because through Christ Jesus, he irreversibly loves us. Slightly awkwardly worded, but it's very simple. We are secure in God because through Christ Jesus, he irreversibly loves us. His love is irrevocable, irreversible, loyal, unswerving, 
And we're going to follow through these verses that we've read again, and we're going to let Paul infuse confidence into us by making three points. Firstly, in verses 31 and 32, God proves that he is for us. God proves that he is for us. Verse 33 and 34, God declares us righteous. And then finally, God loves us permanently. Verse 35 to the end. So firstly then, God proves that he is for us. Verse 31 and 32. In verse 31, where we've broken in here, Paul commences a chain of questions. He commences by saying in verse 31, what shall we say then to these things? Now, these things, obviously, we're sitting here in chapter 8, so we're not going to go through all these things that he's been talking about for the last eight chapters. That is something we are planning to look at next year. But the ground that, God, uh, that Paul has covered has been the gospel of God, what it is and how and why the gospel message saves. So in light of all of this gospel truth that he's been explaining in the past eight chapters, he takes a step back and he says, what conclusion can we draw? Or what conclusion should we draw? Paul gives us his conclusion in another question. If God is for us, who can be against us? After eight chapters of teaching and explaining to us the gospel of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, Paul's conclusion is that God is for us. Now, if he had asked the question, just who is against us, I'm sure you could have thought of quite a few answers. Doubt, anxiety, sin, guilt, death, circumstances, hardships. There are many things that we can think of in response to the question, what or who is against us? But he didn't ask that, did he? He said, if God is for us, who can be against us? And to that question, there is no answer. There is no answer. And I just wonder, how often do we spend time focusing on that partial question of, of who or what is against us? And how much time do we spend asking the question that Paul asks here, if God is for us, who can be against us? At times we're all prone to worry. There's times when it feels like the whole universe is against us family pressures, chronic pain, work stress, maybe even constant reoccurring sin or unresolved conflict. But what if you knew that God was for you? How would that make us think about that which is against us? Can we even know that? Can we be sure? Well, Paul goes on. That leads him to a third question in verse number 32 where he gives us the evidence, the proof even, that indeed we can know that God is for us. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God has proven that he is for us in the historic fact of the gospel. We've seen it in the video. We're going to think about it again at Easter. We have it here in our passage. God has proven that he is for us in the historic fact of the cross. Paul here purposely, I think, echoes the language used of Abraham in his experience in Moriah when Abraham put Isaac on the altar, showing that his faith was indeed in God and his word alone. 
He didn't spare his son, God said to him. But, but there, then, Isaac, of course, he was spared. Yet here, now, when God acted to save us, he did not spare his only son. It's, it's, it's a real interesting contrast, isn't it, that Father Abraham, that, that great iconic picture of what faithfulness to God looks like, he, he's actually just a pointer and, and is vastly superseded by our Father God and his sacrificial faithfulness to us did not spare his own son. And, and it wasn't just that that God was, was sort of passive in the act and allowed events to unfold. Paul says in verse 32, he gave him up for us all. Indeed, as we go through the Easter story this year, we'll see there's lots of people involved, wasn't there? There are lots of people who have responsibility, a, a greedy and disillusioned disciple, Judas, uh, a sort of politically weak puppet in Pilate, an envious uh, and sort of angry Jewish leadership group and a fickle and frenetic crowd, but yet behind them all, above them all, and all those players on the earthly scene, there was a loving, faithful, generous God giving his son for us. I don't know if you're here this morning and you wouldn't yet call yourself a believer in Jesus Christ. You've got to get this, because this is the, the fundamental fact at the heart of the Christian message, that God is a giving God, and that in space-time history, he gave Jesus Christ to be our Savior. So Paul says, God has paid the greatest cost already. It's a past historical fact, and so it gives us true future hope how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The logic is, is, is concrete. It's, it, it's, it's irreversible. If God has given us the most precious thing he has, the most costly thing he has, he'll not hold back any good thing that we need. We, we all sort of use that logic, don't we? We all use that logic where we argue from the greater to the lesser. The first time as parents you try and give instructions to your grand, the grandparents uh, for babysitting, you, you get told back, don't you? I raised four of my own. I think I'll be okay with yours. If I've done the hard job, I, I think the rest is going to be okay. Or the bridesmaid to the bride while running late on the big day. He, he wants to marry you, Johnny. He can wait for another 20 minutes. We all will do it, don't we? The, the logic is sound. It's, it's, it's irreversible. If, the, if the, the effort has been done, the greater and the harder thing has been done, then, then everything else that's easier will, will take care of itself. It will be secure. It's a certainty. And I just wonder, do you ever stop to consider what irreversible love and commitment God has already shown to you in sending the most precious thing he had in his son in giving his son, God gave everything. And if he's given to that extent already, then surely we can know that he is for us. Are you convinced of that this morning? I notice that, you know, in times of a particular difficulty, we can quickly start to think God is testing us. 
And sometimes it's a good thing that we want or it eludes us. Uh, uh, it's, not, it's not a bad thing, it's a good thing. A, a clear bill of health on the next scan or a godly husband or wife or a baby or, or financial security, whatever it might be, it maybe eludes us. And we start to think, and we, we're quick to think about Abraham and Isaac, aren't we? And, and maybe this is a time where God's testing me. And although we wouldn't say it out loud, and to be honest, we might not even realize, but deep down, we're not that convinced that God is actually for us. We even start to imagine maybe he's trying to trick me. Maybe this is a, a way of exposing the real me. We only see Abraham and Isaac, and, and we don't see all of this. We don't see God freely and willingly giving his son for us. And in fact, we, we must meditate, we must get to grips with, with the God who didn't spare his son on Mount Calvary, if we're ever going to walk in the footsteps of Abraham and his son on Mount Moriah. So I wonder, are you able to affirm this text in your heart, in your mind, a confidence that God is for me, for he has given the most precious thing and the most costly thing for me. Of course, he'll take care of my needs now and my needs in the future. In, in fact, meaningful progress, true discipleship, it's never going to happen if we don't relish the joy and the security of his love and that he has proved that he is for us. Secondly then, we are secure in God for God declares us righteous. Verse 34, 33 and 34, Paul, Paul follows, up, follows up with another two questions. He says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Or verse 34, who is to condemn? Paul's word picture changes to the law court. Are we ever going to be able to be dragged into the court, into the dock, and persecuted? As those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, Paul says we're, we're the chosen of God, we're God's elect and he's not just our loving heavenly father, but he is also the perfect righteous judge of all the earth. And his verdict on us has already been given. We've been justified. We've been declared right. We read it last week, didn't we, in chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's done. It's been declared. It's past. And then here again in chapter 8, Paul is thinking both of the verdict that is being passed. He also, I think, is thinking of the future day, that judgment day, when it will be declared for all to hear by God the judge that we are in a right standing. We are righteous in Christ. There won't be a protracted legal battle. We can listen to the voice of the judge now who says, you're justified. You're declared free. And, and more than that, our, our justification, it isn't arbitrary. It certainly isn't based on our faith or our faithfulness. It works and it's effective and it's powerful because of the fourfold action that Paul describes of Jesus Christ in verse 34. Firstly, he died. If I were to stand before God the judge and take my sentence, and it would be rightly condemnation to death. 
but Jesus died the death I should have had. Secondly, not only that, but he was raised up to prove that he was satisfied with his death. God the Father raised him up to life again. Thirdly, we have in verse 34 that Christ was raised further still, raised to the right hand of the throne. He was raised to his rightful position of universal supreme authority. And fourthly, there in that position of ultimate authority and influence, he is exercising his right, his effective power to save by interceding for you and interceding for me. Could there be a more effective intervention than the intercession of Jesus Christ, our sacrifice? Think of how many charges could be brought to God against you. Think how many charges could be brought to God against me. Our temper, our gossip, our financial selfishness, our lust. Whatever they are, imagine they could be hurled into God's court and then imagine how Jesus Christ would speak up from the throne and said, I've taken the death and condemnation for all of these charges. That person you accuse, he's with me in the newness of life and freedom. God the judge looks at the ledger. It states we are righteous. We are free. Yes, the, the love of God, it was displayed and shown in historical fact, but it's not just a memory. It's, it's not just something we cherish from the past. But, but yet, his love is expressed in his moment-by-moment, moment, ongoing, living intercession for us now. No charge, no accusation, no condemnation can be brought against you if you are Christ's. And I think how much of our own insecurity, how much of our own insecurity comes from our attempts to try and justify ourselves, or, or we get so concerned with what we have and haven't done. God has so designed salvation that it's by faith, so that it's, it's, it's not about you, it's, it's about what Jesus Christ has done, is doing, and will do. It's not about how you perform or how much faith you have. And, and I know some of us, we can get distracted from this. We, we're so concerned about having a story of a, a place where and a, a manner how and a time when, or, or we have a, a date in our Bible when we were young and we rely on that. And then as our memory starts to fade and, and the years go on and the, the feelings change, it all feels very shallow and we start to feel insecure, uncertain. What did I say back then and did I really mean it properly? Do you realize what God has done in Christ? what he is doing and what he will do. I mean, jeepers, I was 11 years old when I trusted Christ. I didn't know that God in Christ was declaring me righteous, that Jesus Christ was my intercessor, that I was given the Holy Spirit as a down payment of the future inheritance that is to come, but it wasn't about what I knew. It was about what God has done. That matters a thousand times more. when we reduce the gospel down to a formula that we repeat, we, we lose sight that actually it's God's work, that he does it, that you're the object of God's eternal plan, that you're grounded in God himself, and that can never be taken away. We're secure in Christ because he declares us righteous, and it can't be undone.
We all know of major slip-ups or errors where professional accreditation can be stripped or degrees can be uh, taken off people with wrong actions or new evidence. Cases can be overturned, be brought back to court, and sadly, even family bonds can break down due to mistakes that we do. There's so much, little in life that's secure, but God's verdict on us in Christ is that we are righteous, and that cannot be changed. How many times do you think you have to blow it in order for the declaration of righteousness to be overturned? You'll never hear God say, just one more time, one more time, like he's a desperate parent trying to keep us under control. He's the judge who in Jesus Christ stepped down from the bench and said, I'm paying your guilty sentence with my life. So you can't lose it. You can't mess it up. It can't be stripped. It can't be revoked. This week's sin has been dealt with. Today's sin has been nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. And there is nothing that will come to light that hasn't been dealt with. We are secure in Christ, for he declares us righteous. Finally, the last verses. We're secure in Christ because God loves us permanently. Verse 35 to 39. The final two questions come in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul then lists seven potential causes, potential agents of separation, tribulation, distress, persecution. The pressure from a hostile world, a relentless battle can cause us to ask, have we taken the right path? Famine, nakedness, our basic needs. Does God not care? Danger, sword, execution, death, what greater test? Could God not stop it? And then in verse 36, the Old Testament prayer is quoted from Psalm 44. We looked at it back in January this year, where we learned that the, the prayer of the people of God, that, that the faithful do suffer, and, and that has happened back then, and it happened when Paul wrote it, and it happens now. It's, it's a reality for all the years that have gone before that the faithful still suffer. Yet Paul states now that nothing, none of this, can ever separate us from the love of God. In fact, in enduring these things, because of what God has shown in his love, in the security that we've considered, we can be overwhelmingly conquerors, more than conquerors, through Christ who loved us. Again, note the tense, past, it's, it's been shown, it's been done, but yet it has present and eternal consequences. Christ who loved us. He suffered for us then so that our suffering now will not be pointless or hopeless or wasted. Paul then switches to the personal pronoun, for, for I am sure, I am sure. And his confidence is so well-founded, isn't it? It's so tangible, it's so solid in the logic that we're secure because through Christ, God irreversibly loves us. We're, we're more used to irreversible damage, aren't we? 
we all probably know that sinking feeling. You, oh, I've just broke that vase and I can't fix that. Or I've just stained that dress and that is not coming out. Something smashed, something ripped, something's done, and you, and you know and, and, and you sort of think, well, there's nothing I can do. Spilt milk. And in this passage, it's a bit like the same, only the opposite process, but the same irreversible effect. God has put us together. God has cleansed our record. He has given us new life. He has joined himself to us in his love. And Paul has shown that nothing can separate us from it, so therefore nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. Just as we close, let's get our expectations right. Paul doesn't say it's going to be easy. He doesn't say that we're always going to feel like it's true. And you certainly, we certainly don't deserve it. But we can never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. God has made his intentions, he has made his character fully known. He proves that he is for us. He declares us righteous and he permanently loves us. In Christ Jesus, we know God and we are kept secure in that love. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do pray that we would cooperate with the work of your Holy Spirit as he spreads and pours out into our hearts your love as displayed in your Son, the Lord Jesus. We pray that our hearts would be full of his love as we get to know your revelation, get to know you in the way that you've made yourself known, and that our minds will be engaged so that we'll be effective, faithful, as we continue on in our path of discipleship. So we commit your word to the work of your spirit for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and in his name, amen.